Today's episode is episode 190 of Unconventional Humans podcast. Today's episode is called Kafka on the Shore. So today's episode is about the book Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. He's a Japanese author. He's got a number of different books. He's quite well known as an author. When I was looking into him, there was an interview he gave on his website in English and he said something that was quite interesting. He said, for me, writing a novel is like having a dream. Writing a novel lets me intentionally dream while I'm awake. I can continue yesterday's dream today, something you can't normally do in everyday life. It's also a way of descending deep into my own consciousness. So while I see it as dreamlike, it's not fantasy. For me, the dreamlike is very real. So I found it very interesting what he said there, that... Writing, he sees writing as a way to continue dreaming while he's awake, and that he doesn't see the dream so much a fantasy. It's actually very real to him. There's aspects of that in his book. There's a lot of fantastical elements to his book. And there was one thing in the book that really stood out to me was so the characters in the book, Kafka. Oshima, Miss Saiki, Nakata. They're all people who are outside of the mainstream and a lot of them are quite introspective characters. And something that came up quite a bit in the book, well, came up once or twice, it caught my eye, was the reference that, I think an example of it was, in reference in relation to the police that they're not very imaginative and it was the first time i thought of that in terms of i think when they were saying that the police and just the different people in society were not very imaginative i got the sense that it was that these people are more hypnotized by their role that it's very hard for them to see nuance instead of just seeing the black and white way of looking at things and the sense I got from the reference to imagination was actually that an active imagination helps you to see the world more clearly as it is. And I think that ties to, that might tie to what he said there in the interview, that he sees dreams as actually very real. And because my interpretation based on my own experiences, would be that I also think that... I think that writing is actually a great outlet to to help you see reality more clearly because it helps you to expand on your thinking, your thought process. And I think in relation to the imagination, in order to imagine, you can't let yourself think in black and white terms so I feel like the imagination there is it's allowing for unknown variables that will help you to piece together the actual picture. And Murakami, for this book too, he gave some sort of... He was saying that the book is a series of riddles. And if you reread it a few times, each person will come to their own conclusions or own solutions based off of these riddles he said that was the intention he wrote it with so he's, he's quite a complex character Murakami 
there's aspects of Western, the Western world and Japanese culture in there, intermixed in there. Kafka, for example, is a reference to the Czech writer, Franz Kafka, who I think he he's one of his favorite writers. So in the book itself, I just want to talk around some things that stood out to me. I don't think I'd be able to even give away the plot, to be honest, because it's quite a complex book, I found. It really engages your imagination. What I found interesting about this book, though, was that there's two distinct stories happening in parallel. So as you're reading the book, I think it's every second chapter, or even actually, I think it's Kafka's, I think it was on the even number chapters, Kafka's story, and Nakata's story is on the odd chapters, which is, I think is a bit ironic because Nakata, he's a guy who, when he was a boy, he was like everybody else, he was normal, he was actually quite intelligent, he was an A-grade student. Then an accident happened, and he lost his capacity to think abstractly. He couldn't read or write anymore, but he could talk to cats. And then he was actually seen as odd by other people, by society. He was seen as he was seen as dumb, and he believed that himself too. What was interesting about it though was that he saw himself as dumb, but he had no real sense of meaning to that. So he wasn't getting down on himself for being dumb. That was just the reality he was living in. It was interesting to see a character who didn't have memories. That was the other part of it. He didn't have memories and he couldn't think abstractly. I think he had a very bare minimum of abstraction. I think, for example, with money, he could understand what a certain amount of money, what value that held. But beyond that, he couldn't comprehend any further. So... I think even in this book, his cousin stole from him. He stole his, I think, the money he had stashed away for after he'd retired that was stolen from him. But because he couldn't comprehend what the amount meant, he didn't really feel down on himself. He didn't. He couldn't grasp the gravity of it. So you see the, the actual positive to an ex, a massive handicap. You see the positive is that you... He's not attaching meaning to things. He's not getting down on himself. So there's a whole layer of emotional pain that he avoids. So I found that quite interesting. There's a lot of negatives to to a person like that in the world. A lot of like negatives in the sense that a lot of negatives for themselves. But there's also some positives that are actually quite profound. So the, the book itself, it explores, one of the aspects of it, it explores the Oedipus complex that Freud came up with. It's this idea that the child lusts after his mother and wants to kill his father. I think that the Oedipus complex, if you're going to have, give it any sort of weight, I think it's thinking about it more in terms of symbols, more so than the literal because if you look at the Oedipus complex, I think it was a myth, Oedipus. But if you look at it from the literal, I don't feel like it does much good. I think that first time I heard about the Oedipus complex years back, when I wasn't even interested in psychology, for me it sounded very odd because it was framed that you want to have sex with your mother and kill your father. 
that's what this book actually explores in an indirect way. So for me, on a literal level, for me, that just sounded nonsensical. But if you look at it more on a symbolism level, like lusting after your mother, actually looking for approval from your mother, like I don't think there's any concrete answer in there, but there could be a hint at how you're seeing the world and then killing the father. Again, it's like, if you think of that more in terms of what's the symbol to that? Like what's the, the way I would start thinking about that there is like, what's the aspect of the father that I want to kill in myself? So when I start thinking of the Oedipus complex in those terms, it's actually helpful because it actually helps me to understand parts of myself that I might see in my parents that I mightn't want or even it'll help me to understand why I'm potentially lusting after something that might just feel familiar more than something I actually desire. So those things are actually quite interesting when you start looking at them at a bit of a deeper level, but with nothing really on it. It's kind of like the story. It's like you're exploring things. You have nothing really on it that is going to be a solid, concrete answer to this. But through the exploration, you start to uncover insights. The other thing about Nakata was that he met a character, Hashino, towards the end, who was helping him. And because of how Nakata was, he had a profound impact on Hashino. Because Nakata was quite different, very different to the average person you'll meet. So he stood out to Hashino. I think at one point he... he he asked Nakata about something along the lines of what does he do when he's bored? And Nakata couldn't comprehend what is bored. Hashino picked up on it that he, he got that from him. He got that sense from him that this is a guy who who doesn't get bored. He doesn't know the feeling. So that was another thing for that was interesting about Nakata was that because he is very limited in his abstract thought, to the extent that he doesn't really have abstract thought at all, he seems to live in the present moment. So I would imagine that something like that is a, is an engaging present person to be around. And there was also just an innocence to him that was, uh, I guess, quite endearing as well. And then that was in stark contrast to Miss Saiki, who she lived in the past so she was, I don't think she was the owner of the library, but she was, she was the carer in the library anyway. She took, she was the person responsible for the library. And she wrote a lot and her memories were, she cherished her memories, but she lived a lot in the, in the past. Music plays a big part actually, and I think in Haruki's work, works in his books, Hashino started getting into classical mu music after he met Nakata. And he, I think he was listening to the Archduke Trio by, I think, Beethoven. Beethoven. And he was saying how it put him in a more introspective mood. And I'm starting to, I start, I'm starting to get that. I, I was never interested in classical music up until maybe a few months ago. And now I, I listen to it a bit more. Because it does actually put you in an introspective mood. There's something about it where there's a bit of soul to it. And there's a silence in it too with classical music, I feel. There's a silence there that's quite healing or something. There's something there. And I think I wasn't into classical music 
years ago because my mind was too revved up to actually appreciate the silence and the calmness of classical music. I guess it probably helps too that I think as a programmer, it's those types of music that I would have heard of other developers, other programmers listening to. I, I think it, it kind of puts you in a calm state of mind for problem solving. That would be my hypothesis about that one. So Kafka Tamura, he's the main character, but Kafka is not his real name. I think Kafka means crow in Czech. He also had a, a reference to a boy named Crow, who it seems like it's his, his conscience. It seems like it's his conscience. Crow seems to come and go every now and again. And the one thing that stood out, stands out is that Crow tells him when he's running away from home that he's the strongest 15-year-old in the world. The other thing that was intriguing in this book was that Nakata talked to cats. And the cats he talked to, they didn't have names. So in the cat world, there's no use for names. And that just got me thinking about humans, how we have a need for names. And on a practical level, a name is, is to give a reference to somebody, really, because that's kind of what I boiled down for, to for Nakata when he was talking to the cats and he wanted to know their name. He didn't have a name. He came up with a name for them. I think at one point he said that I just need a reference to use. So that got me thinking about, as humans as well, I suppose on a practical level, the name is a reference so you can refer to somebody. If you didn't have a name, it would be a lot harder to refer to somebody. So that's the benefit as humans for us having names. But the negative to that is that that's part of the process of us getting lost in our own conceptions of self. So when we're young, that's one of the first things we acquire from the people around us, the environment around us. And that just keeps reinforcing that onto us from years and years of it. To the extent that we don't even see there's a separation between my name and who I am. You could start believing that your name is a fundamental part of you when if you really think about it, you didn't choose the name yourself. Your parents couldn't go up with any name. So it was kind of ironic that Nakata recognized that names are important for reference. But Nakata was the type of character that wouldn't identify with his name because of what I'm saying, that he didn't have memories, he couldn't really think in the abstract. So the benefit for him is that he's not lost in all those abstractions. So for him, I guess it'd be easier for him to see that a name is a reference more so than a solid sense of identity. So that was an interesting thing that I saw from when he was speaking to the cats. Another thing that happened in this book at one stage, there were some women who came into the library so Ashima is a complex character. I think, so he, the transvestite, because his, his sex, he's female by sex, but he doesn't identify as a female. And actually, he didn't have breasts either. So 
he saw himself as a man and at one stage you have some women come into the library and they're checking out the library to see whether it conforms with their ideas about female equality so when they start talking to Ashima because he looks like a man they projected all their stuff onto him so when he wasn't agreeing with what they were saying they took that as the patriarchy speaking and this machoist man so the book there deals with dealing with ideologues because that situation escalated and the reason it escalated is because Oshima didn't like those types of people who didn't see the person in front of them have a conversation with them but rather projected their own ideological thought and notions about the world onto them that that's quite relevant today i suppose that that there's always an aspect of that that's relevant so i found that good that he incorporated that into the book spoke around that and highlighted it, that it wasn't to do with the ideas nobody was arguing against female equality but what was happening here was that you people projecting ideas onto somebody else and not really listening to the person in front of them the other thing that was clear in this book was that Kafka had a love of books even though he didn't like school so when he escaped when he ran away from his father the reason he was running away from his father was that his father the prophecy the Oedipus the Oedipus complex he had the prophecy that he would kill him and he'd sleep with his mother and there's a whole layer to this book that is caught up in dreams so things actually happen in the dreams and there's a connection between Nakata and Kafka even though they're different stories and they don't meet in the book but there is an interconnectivity between the characters Misaiki, Kafka, Nakata when they go to sleep that's why I really got a sense of how powerful the imagination is like I said come back to the start when I mentioned about his quote there about he sees writing as a way of dreaming while he's awake I think that when he's saying that dreaming while he's awake it's actually that he's awake I think the average person in society is asleep because they're so hypnotized by the outside world they're like under a spell and that's how they're not very imaginative that's how they don't see nuance so easily that's how they can't have a conversation or connection with somebody because they're asleep so I think writing for I'm projecting, I suppose, myself onto Haruki Marukami, but that's kind of the sense I get here. Like when you're reading the book, you're reading a writer who's actually alive, who's actually engaging his imagination, and who has an understanding of human nature that somebody sleepwalking their way through life wouldn't have. So that's kind of the way I look at that. And then when it comes back to the names again, we you, we never get the real name of, of Kafka. So that could be just another another nod to the fact that your real name, identifying with that, might actually get in the way of knowing who you are and growing up. 
I think an interpretation too of Kafka running away was that he was running away to find his spirit, to find his soul. That's something that's quite quite prevalent whenever I look at Japanese things. There's, there's, there's quite an emphasis on the spirit world and like fantastical elements. I think I, I watched Spirited the Way there last year and there's a lot of there's a lot of focus on on spirit, which which I think is is good. It's refreshing. I think that 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 that's needed to, to balance things out a bit. Because when you over focus on material things and looking at the world more mechanical, I think you lose that imagination, that sense of wonder, that sense of adventure, that sense of self that's needed. So. I can identify with that in some way too. Like I, Kafka has run away to find his spirit, but he doesn't know he's doing that. In some ways, I can look at myself, look at my own life. When I went to France to live abroad, I felt like I was looking for something at some level, but I didn't know what I was looking for. And when I look back in my life, I feel like those journeys abroad did help me to get outside myself and experience that I had did help me to connect with myself at a deeper level even though if you asked me at the time what I was doing all I knew was I was going there to learn French I didn't know that there was like deeper reasons for doing things and even today I can't say with any certainty any sort of certainty that this this and this happened but I know that something more on a visceral level happens and that's the sense I get too from reading Kafka on the shore the character all the characters but especially Kafka they're maturing but you can't point to exactly what's the end product here what's the version of Kafka at the end compared with the version of Kafka at the start like the lessons he learned are quite profound like he spent some time as well in a cabin by himself so there's quite an emphasis too on solitude in this book the importance of solitude and he went into the woods. He met some Japanese soldiers who'd gotten lost during World War Two. They made some good points too. Like when he met them, he met them in an alternative, an alternate world. But they got lost in the woods. They, they basically they ran away because they didn't want to be sent away to kill people or be killed. So they said it was bad enough to be killed, or it's bad enough to kill people besides being killed. Uh, so I think that's that's something that comes up quite a bit in Murakami's books because he was born just after World War Two, I think nineteen forty nine or so. I think maybe the Americans were occupying Japan at that time. So there's a bit of a, there's some references to World War Two, I think, throughout his books. There was in this book in there. But that's it. That's Kafka on the shore. It's a quite a big book, about five hundred pages long. I think I think a lot of his novels are quite long. So a different type of book for me to read I enjoyed reading it it was something a bit different and that's it if you want to get if you'd like to get my book the links in the show notes it's called the edge it's about uncovering your creative edge becoming yourself through creativity a journey from plato's cave to the artist's world if you enjoyed today's episode give a rating and a review subscribe on youtube and yeah so thanks again for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's episode